turn to Luke chapter 2, it's page 1590, 1590 in your pew Bibles. It's just verse 7, and it's only, in fact, 7b. So verse 7 begins by telling us that she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, which we've already taken time to meditate on. We'll now meditate on these words. She wrapped him in clothes or cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. May the Lord add his blessing to that word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Christmas is, I think we'd all agree, a rather lovely time of the year. There is something very Uh, encouraging, very uh, blessed about this time of the year where people are oriented to giving away gifts, to spending time with each other, to enjoying life. There is this seemingly moment of of peace and tranquility that descends upon an otherwise fractious and, and divided society. It's a reminder of what happened so many years ago in World War I when the combatants, so separated by uh, their, their trenches, came out for a moment on Christmas Day to sing hymns together, to play a little football, and to enjoy fellowship with each other before going back, of course, to killing each other the next day. But there's this moment of, of, of just peace and joy, so much so that we wish, don't we, like the singers of our culture tell us, that it would be Christmas more often, that, that it would be Christmas every day of the year. Wouldn't it be great if this sentiment, if this emotion, if this loveliness could carry on beyond just the season of Christmas? But it doesn't, does it? It ends very quickly. For many, tomorrow is the more joyful day when they can go and get what they really wanted in the stores, and soon thereafter, the busyness of life descends upon us again, and and soon enough, the bills start coming due, the visas, MasterCards that we've put all of this joy on need to be paid, and the reality of, of the challenges of life descends maybe a little harder, because for a moment, we had that sense of joy. That's always the case with sentimentality, isn't it? Sentimentality for a moment makes it feel good, but it doesn't do good. Sentimentality makes us feel good for a moment, but it doesn't change our circumstance of life. And yet we have this need as human beings, we have this tendency to sentimentalize life. We do it with everything. We even do it with the Christmas story. If you had to tell someone who knew nothing about the Christmas story, if you had to paint for them a picture, how would you do that? My guess is that you would talk about this young couple, the wife, nine months pregnant, out to here, ready to give birth, riding on a donkey as she had to travel because of cruel Rome to get to Bethlehem. And they get there at the dead of night, don't they? The stars are out. Everyone's in their homes. The light shining from the living rooms where laughter and joy is echoing. But there's, there's no place for this couple, these guests who knock on doors, who go to the inn of Bethlehem only to have the innkeeper say, I have no room. 
the, the city has been overrun because of this census with all of these guests and I'm sorry, I simply haven't play a place for you. I do have a stable. You may stay there if you'd like. And so they quietly and somewhat dejectedly go off into that place where the cattle are lowing. And at some point in that night, the woman gives birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wraps him in, in swaddling cloths and lays him in a manger. A manger where sheep, lambs were to be laid. Lambs that were often swaddled Lambs that were born in that region of Bethlehem, so close to Jerusalem, because they needed to feed the sacrificial system of Israelite religion. Those shepherds in their fields nearby were raising sheep that would be sacrificed at Passover, who would be sacrificed through the week. They were raising these sheep to be the ones who would please God and remove the sins of Israel from them. They would be putting lambs in mangers in swaddling cloths. And so Jesus, the greater lamb, the lamb of God, is placed in the position of sacrifice for us. Isn't it compelling? Isn't it so very sentimental? And none of it's true. We want to believe it's true. And we ought to ask ourselves why. Why do we want that story to be true? Why is that what speaks to us? Why do we need that sentimentality in order to be moved by the story of Christmas? Now, don't misunderstand. That our Messiah is despised and rejected is unquestioned. We read that in Isaiah 53. But what if that's not the point of Luke's gospel? In fact, what if it's based entirely on the mistranslation of one word? In our Bibles, in Luke, 7 verse, in Luke 2 verse 7, we're told that there was no room at the inn. In Luke 22, verse 12, the exact same word is used, only now it's described as an upper room. And when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, and that Samaritan, or the Good Samaritan, you remember, takes the man to an inn, Luke uses the word for inn, a different word than this one. Which is to suggest, as the, the new NIV, the 2011 NIV indicates, Inn's not a good translation of the word here. There is no inn. There's no mean innkeeper. There's no stable. And that business of the sheep isn't true. So what is true? Well, in determining the, work, word, uh, sorry, the translation of this one Greek word, we are greatly helped by a scholar named Stephen Carlson. He wrote a 17-page article on how this word should be translated in this passage. Now, we're not going to revisit his argument or discuss it even. You can find it on the web for yourself, but you can at least appreciate his conclusion because Carlson convincingly demonstrates that at a minimum, this word ought to be translated rather generically, which is to say our Bibles should at least read this because they had no space in the place where they were staying. And then he goes on to suggest that we can become a little more specific when we allow the cultural context and textual clues to play their role. 
all of which suggests that Joseph and Mary were given a marital chamber, probably on the roof of their parents' house, which chamber was fitting for a young couple as they waited to find a home of their own. This couple had just been married. And dad and mom say, you're just married. You need a bit of privacy. We'll build this little space, this little walled-in space with these temporary walls so that you can enjoy that for the time. But that space, you understand, was too small to have a baby in. There was no room in that place for her to have the child. So when it came time for her to have a child, the midwife or maybe her mother-in-law sent everybody out of the house, a house which would have been probably one large room in which there might have been at night animals. There certainly would have been a manger. And she pushed them all out. And then Mary gave birth to her son. And they did for that son what they did for every baby. They wrapped it in cloths and laid it in a manger. That's what you did with babies. The story becomes radically different when you understand the difference of one word. Wed in Nazareth with Mary's family, traveling to Bethlehem where Joseph's family was from, staying with family who made accommodations for this happy couple. Everything that happened in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ was ordinary, basic, Regular, typical, unexciting, uneventful. Too devoid of the color that we want the story to have. Where's the heartwarming struggle? Where's the secret knowledge that allows us to see the truth? Where's the condemnation of those who miss the truth? An ordinary birth story? That doesn't work for us. And why is that? Why is the simple birth of Jesus unadorned with any struggle, simply the basic story of a child being born? Why is that not enough? I think we can point to our culture for a reason for why that may be. We live in a culture that requires constant and persistent entertainment. We need constant images, constant Stimulation, ordinary, boring is no good. Our minds can no longer rest. They can't simply sit for a moment. We need to be entertained. But I wonder if there's something more here that's a little more basic, something that appeals to our human nature, something that explains our aversion to the ordinary. Don't we all want to be special? Don't we all need to believe that we're born to change the world? Isn't that what we're constantly being told by our culture? And it resonates, doesn't it? It resonates with us. We've been conditioned to think that we're brighter, bigger, better. And that that's always better. And not surprisingly, that can burden us. The daily grind the regular rhythms of life, the endless pile of laundry, the constant stream of paperwork. We get bogged down in the mundane. We get overwhelmed by the ordinary. 
We need excitement. We need to be alive. We need a reason to get up in the morning. And the same old, same old isn't it. The novel, that's where it's at. The new and exciting, not the ordinary. Which is a really old desire, isn't it? That's a desire that we find in the very beginning of time, in a lie told long ago by a snake in a garden. You can be gods, he said. None of these limitations, none of these demands, none of this workaday world. Be alive! Experience everything! He bred into our hearts discontent, making us see God's glorious creation as not enough as ordinary. In modern parlance, the serpent was the first insta-influencer. And we've been struggling with that ever since. Ever since, man has struggled with the simple blessedness of God's grace and goodness. In Genesis 6, the sons of God see that the daughters of men are beautiful and they defy God. The God who has promised to redeem them, the God who has promised to deliver them from the judgment that is theirs, they say, we don't want that, we want her. The people of Israel want a king who's handsome, dynamic, rich, just like one of the world's leaders. Not a king that will lead them into righteousness, but a king that will lead them into wealth. Jesus feeds thousands with a bit of bread and they want him to be king. Because they want a world with a guaranteed minimum income. And we're shaped in the same way, aren't we? We're, we're taught to long for, free, for, for freedom from the mundane, for freedom 55, life without limits. Little wonder we can't be content with the ordinary. But what if the ordinary is by itself? Because it's so ordinary, the most extraordinary thing you will hear today or any day. The devil knows that that's the case, you understand. The devil knows that the most wonderful thing you'll ever hear today is that she gave birth to her firstborn a son, wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger. And he doesn't want you to pay attention to that. He wants you to be entertained. He wants you to, be, to require more. He wants you to be amused because he doesn't want you to be amazed. Amazed that this is how the Messiah was born. That's who it is, remember. Oh yes, it's the most ordinary of ways. In the most domestic of circumstances, in the most plain of situations. But think of who's being born into this everyday, normal, basic world, this world that you and I inhabit, this world that we live every day. We live this life. We live this world. We live in this bruising, burdensome, this joyful, celebratory. We live in this life into which this baby is now born in the most ordinary way. Our daily lives are what he now comes into. But see who he is. That's why we read from Isaiah 53. We could have read from so many Old Testament passages that paint for us the glorious picture of who this baby is. Think of how many 
thousands of years, God was preparing his people to know the identity, the simple identity of this child. He sent angels to Joseph. Don't be afraid because what's, what's conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He sent angels to Zechariah, to Elizabeth, to Mary, to the shepherds in the fields nearby. Giving to them this strange word. You will find a babe clothed, wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Why didn't, why didn't the angel say you'll find him in a, in a stable somewhere? That would have been a little more helpful. You, you know the inn in Bethlehem? Just go behind it and you'll find in the stable there. Yeah, they didn't say that. They said you'll find a baby like every other baby who is born and wrapped and laid in a manger. You will find the most ordinary Savior in the world. The majesty and the glory of the announcement contrasted the ordinary nature of this birth. They came to say, he's the one. He's the one. He doesn't look it. He doesn't appear it. There is no halo over his head. But he's the one. He's the one. He's the one you need. He's the one you need because of the brokenness of this world. Because of what has caused the pain and suffering that we all deal with every day. He's the one because man rebelled against God because man refuses to honor God because man has to pay for man's sin. And so God sent a man, sent His Son in the form of a man. And the Son of God humbled Himself to the place of a man so that He could put upon His shoulders the burden of our grief and sorrow. He came this way because this is the only way for us to be redeemed, for us to be saved. He needed flesh and blood so that He could nail them to a cross. He needed to come and obey so that we could be clothed in garments of righteousness. He needed to be this child. He needed to walk among us for salvation could come about in no other way. We want it to come about in another way. We do. We want it to come about in some more extraordinary way. Maybe on some, some spirit quest that we go on and suddenly have a vision. We want some moment where the sky is open and the truth is revealed. We want to experience some profound event. We want it to be remarkable. But the most remarkable thing of all is that the Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And He came not first of all to tell us something, though He does tell us a lot. And He didn't come first of all to show us something, though He does show us a lot. He came first of all to do something to come into our world, to come into our moment, to come into our circumstance of life, to come into our reality, to come into our joys and our sorrows, our blessings and our burdens. He enters into our world, into our wounds, into our wonder in order to lift us from the pit of sin 
in order to deliver us from the griefs and free us to hope and rejoice, to celebrate on Christmas Day the enormity of His grace, the impossible is reality in the flesh in that baby. The hopelessness of this world is shattered and the darkness of death bled light on that morning. Meaning and purpose become realities. Relationships and responsibilities become worthwhile. Everything changes because there's a baby born in the most ordinary of ways. And in fact... In fact, isn't it the very ordinariness of the story that becomes the dividing between faith and unbelief? Because what's more exciting? The pageantry and presence of Christmas? I'm sure yesterday were more than a few churches that gathered on Christmas Eve. I've been to churches on Christmas Eve that have had live camels, angels descending from the rafters, a pyrotechnic show that would thrill the heart of any concert goer. Amazing, moving, powerful. Get your heart pumping. And here we are, listening to a word about a baby and not much else. What gets your heart going? Which do you look forward to? Which is more valuable to you? Maybe that's why we want to gussy up this story. Add a bit of drama. Invent a bit of excitement. An inhospitable innkeeper. Some lowing cattle. A forgotten family. A little more hallmark. What if the ordinary is extraordinary? In so many ways, isn't that the story of Jesus' life? Jesus goes to his family at some point in Nazareth. He comes among them and he doesn't perform many miracles among them because of their unbelief. And what does he say? He says that a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. Why why not? Why, Why wouldn't they accept Jesus? Well, because they knew him. They grew up with him. They went to school with him. They knew his brothers and his sisters. They knew his father and his mother. That's Jesus. He's no Messiah. I've known him all my life. And isn't that at least an explanation for why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the rest of it did to Jesus, what Pilate and Herod did to Jesus when they crucified him? Did they see who he was? Did they realize who this meant? Did they understand that their existence was held by his hands? That their very reality was only possible because he is the Son of God? Did they not know who he was? They didn't. Of course they didn't. Otherwise they would have bowed before him. They would have cried out for mercy. They would never have crucified the Lord of glory. But they didn't see All they saw was an ordinary guy. 
just like everybody else, could be dismissed, could be derided, could be disrespected because he's just a guy. And, and doesn't he, even Jesus use this, this very thing to great effect in his ministry? Think, think of his parables. Think about how he tells those stories about a treasure in a field, a pearl, a little vignettes, little interesting stories, but what's the point? His disciples say to him, what's the point? And Jesus says, well, I don't want everybody to understand who I am. I don't want everybody to know who I am. And so I'm hiding myself behind the ordinary, behind the basic story. They can't penetrate the truth. They can't see the depth of the truth. Indeed, none of us can. Isn't that what Jesus said to Peter when he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, you are the son of the living God, the Christ. Blessed are you, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. You cannot see Jesus except you be given eyes to see except you've been blessed by the Father to know this Messiah, to worship at His feet. He is otherwise just too ordinary. Isn't that that something of our world today? Jesus is not valued much today, is He? By our culture, by our society. He's not seen as very useful. Jesus is an antiquated idea, a historical reality, but nothing special. And yet we know, don't we? We know the enormity of the grace of God that is revealed in just the realization this child is the Messiah. And nothing else is needed. You don't need to gussy up the story. You don't need sentimentality. All you need to do is see who He is. For in Him there is a power and a hope that lasts not only for a day, but for a lifetime and for eternity itself. The world wishes that today, with all of its sentimentality, would extend a little farther. But we don't need such empty claptrap. We don't need the sentimentality of Hallmark. We have the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the incarnate, the righteous, the remarkable Messiah. And we don't need a stable and glowing cattle, all the rest of it, because we have the Son. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. That's what we have. We don't need anything else. Let's thank Him for it. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, what amazing grace. What a remarkable gift. We sometimes get distracted, Lord. We miss the gift because we get worked up about all the other stuff. But may we today, for a moment, just see, be given eyes to see by You, our God. Indeed, Lord, if there are any who've come to us today, who are worshiping with us today, 
who maybe have never really understood who Jesus is, have not really seen him for who he is. He's just a historical figure. He's just an ordinary guy. Open their eyes now, Lord, to see that he is the hope of all the nations, that he is the power of salvation, that he is the Lord of glory. And help us all, Lord, to leave this place encouraged, equipped, and enabled to rightly worship and to praise your name with family and friends together today as we go to our ordinary homes and our ordinary lives. Help us to carry this extraordinary truth that she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. What a wonderful, glorious truth. Hear our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.